Hello and welcome, Mike Gendron. Good to be with you, David. Oh, thank you, Mike. Great to be with you as well. We're going to be talking about the Roman Catholic Church today. But before we do that, what's your background, Mike, and how did you become interested in our topic today? Well, I lived uh, a Roman Catholic life for 35 years. I was a very devout Roman Catholic, an altar boy for seven years. I taught high school Catholic Christian doctrine. Later on, I was responsible for bringing the first Bible study to a Catholic church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And when I started reading the Bible, I had a conflict of faith. I had a, a crisis because what I was reading in the Bible was diametrically opposed to what I was taught as a Roman Catholic regarding the salvation of my soul. And so it came down to, should I trust Christ in his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? As a math major, I knew I couldn't believe both. I had a very logical mind. And so I cried out to the Lord for faith and repentance, and he turned my life upside down. Um, when I was born again, I recognized that I'd left 1.3 billion Roman Catholics behind, and I wanted to spend the rest of my life with the things that would last throughout all eternity, and that would be the Word of God and the souls of men. So we began inviting Roman Catholics to our home just to share the gospel with them, and during my three years at Dallas Theological Seminary, we had an opportunity to go into different churches and seminaries and equip the body of Christ to reach out to this huge mission field. So it really has been an amazing journey for 32 years now. Our Lord has taken us all over the world, and we've been to your beautiful country and had an opportunity to minister there as well. Yeah, brilliant. And tell us about the ministry that you've got set up now, Mike. Yes, it actually started with our desire to see Catholics saved, and we began inviting them to our home every Tuesday night. For three months, we invited every Catholic we knew, and within that three-month period, God saved, 30, 30, God saved 17 people, and they exchanged their religion for a relationship with the Lord Jesus right. Christ. Yeah. And so what do you do with 17 new babes in Christ? Well, you invite them back over on Wednesday night. To help them grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So they began asking us to publish some newsletters and tip sheets, if you will, so they could witness to their Catholic friends. And that was the beginning of our gospel track publication. We now have eight different gospel tracks. They're all very doctrinally sound, and they have been very effective in setting Catholics free from religious bondage and religious deception. So it's been a, a wonderful 32 years. We've, of course, had a lot of bumps in the road as um, people attack us, attack the ministry. But um, we know that unbelievers attack the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that uh, the world will hate you and persecute you. And we're seeing a lot of that. But the fruit that's come out of this ministry has really been amazing. And um, anybody that reads our monthly newsletter, we print newsletters, we print letters from Catholics that have um, repented and believed the gospel. And it's just really encouraging to see the work of the Lord going forth. And where can people find out more information about this, Mike? Yeah, our website is proclaimingthegospel.org, proclaimingthegospel.org. And that's where they can go and not only sign up for our newsletter, 
but we also have a wealth of information. We've got videos, we've got um, articles that I've written over 32 years with the express purpose of equipping the body of Christ to be faithful and effective witnesses to Roman Catholics. Of course, we're concerned about anyone that's perishing, but our primary love and compassion is for Roman Catholics who are where I was. You see, David, I thought I was in the one true church. That's what I was indoctrinated with. I thought I would eventually get to heaven, albeit through a detour into purgatory, but I felt like I was being good enough, which is what the Catholic Church teaches you have to do in order to become righteous before God. So I have a, a compassion for those who are deceived. Um, the gospel of the Catholic Church is a false and fatal gospel. It does not even resemble the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so on our website, we just uh, encourage people to watch the videos, to um, read our articles, and that'll equip them better. We've also got some good news, David. Just in the last two weeks, someone has volunteered to convert my two books, Preparing for Eternity and Contending for the Gospel, into audio books. And so those will be available on Amazon.com in the near future, probably in May or June. Yeah, that is exciting. That's really, really good stuff. We're going to be covering lots lots of various things with with regards to your ministry um, today. Before we do that, there are a lot of people, aren't there, working really hard in trying to have unity with the Roman Catholic Church and to, to call them our brothers and sisters in Christ. What are your thoughts on this, Mike? Well, ecumenical unity is being disobedient to the word of God. And that is, uh, we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 to 18. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And evangelicals who are seeking unity with Roman Catholic religion are in essence seeking unity with unbelievers that deny the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus. They deny his gospel and they deny the authority of Scripture. And so Paul makes it very clear. What does light have in common with darkness? What does Christ have in common with Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So we cannot be united in spiritual enterprises. Well, the ecumenical movement is an attempt to unite Catholics, evangelicals, and Orthodox as co-belligerents to fight the global, moral, political, and social ills in um you know, if the gospel were left out of the Manhattan Declaration and the other unity accords, there'd be no problem signing it. But the fact that the Manhattan Declaration says that we share a common faith with Roman Catholics, that is an outright lie. And it's uh, not only putting the Roman Catholic religion off limits to the gospel, because if evangelical leaders say we share a common faith in the gospel, then we don't need to evangelize Catholics. So it's discouraged the body of Christ. There's a lot of confusion. Yeah. Evangelicals today don't know if the Catholic Church represents a huge mission field or if it's made up of unbelievers that need to be evangelized. So this ecumenical unity has really been horrible. It's um, it's denied the work of our Lord Jesus Christ going forth into this huge mission field. Yeah, yeah that's helpful. Thank you. What is the history of the Roman Catholic Church? Has it always been apostate? And why was the Reformation needed in the first place, Mike? Well, apostasy doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual departing from the faith. And 
And that's what apostasy is. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1 said, In latter days, some will depart from the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to list one of the doctrines of demons, forbidding people to marry. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church forbids its clergy to marry, so it's got the fingerprints of apostasy right there. But we know that apostasy has taken place for 2,000 years now. 1 John 2.19 John writes, they went out from us because they were never part of us. Had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. So another way John could have said that, they were never born again, therefore they departed from us. Had they been born again, they would have remained with us. And so we see the initial movement away from the faith in the first century. The Catholic Church through the second and third century started departing from the authority of Scripture started following pagan traditions. When Emperor Constantine came in, he was self-proclaimed Pontificus Maximus, which is the highest priest. And so he had a vision that the, the, the way to unite a fragmented Roman Empire was to make Christianity the official religion. And so his Christianity was an apostate form of Christianity there was no need for repentance and faith. All you had to do was go through the baptismal font and you became a Christian under Constantine. And so during that time in the fourth and fifth century, a lot of pagan traditions crept into Constantine's church. And most evangelicals would point to that as the genesis of the Roman Catholic Church. That's when the seeds were planted, the pagan traditions that they now hold but from the 5th century down through the 16th, more and more pagan traditions crept into the church. And it was at the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church officially and dogmatically departed from the faith of the apostles by issuing over 100 anathemas to those who believe the gospel and those who do not believe Roman Catholic teaching. So if these signers of the unity accords would only recognize that the catholic church has condemned us over 100 times with their anathemas maybe they would not be so foolish as to attempt to have unity with the catholic church yeah yeah so true language and defining terms is so important when we speak to people of other faiths give us some examples of words or terms that we both use but mean completely different things mike well, grace is an important one. Catholics believe they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. But the grace in the Catholic Church is defined as something they must merit in order to obtain eternal life. Well, how do you merit the unmerited favor of God? And so another important word is justification. The Roman Catholic Church has totally distorted the doctrine of justification. In fact, they mix it with sanctification, saying justification is really the renewal of the interior man. It takes place over a period of time, whereas the Bible says it's instantaneous. It's by faith in Christ. And that instantaneous declaration is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to those who repent and believe his gospel. Rome says, no, it's a process. It's an infusion of righteousness over a period of time. And then the Roman Catholic Church also declares justification is not permanent. You can lose your right standing before God when you commit a mortal sin, and then you need to be re-justified. And, and so that 
doctrine of justification is totally perverted by the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther said that justification is the very hinge upon which the gates of heaven open and close. If you get justification wrong, you get the gospel wrong. If you get right. justification wrong, you cannot be right with God. And so it's a very important term that we need to make sure we define according to the Bible. Yeah, yeah, really helpful. What are the main theological differences between evangelical Bible-believing Christians and Roman Catholics, Mike? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 that some would come and preach another Jesus and another gospel, and of course, led by another spirit. The Roman Catholic Church worships and trusts another Jesus. They believe another gospel, and they submit to another authority. And so those are the three primary areas where we're theologically different with Roman Catholics. You see, when you don't submit to the authority of God's word, then a lot of false teaching comes into the church. We know from 2 Timothy 3 that the word of God, the scripture is useful for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. And so the two key elements of that scripture there, scripture is useful for correcting and reproof. And so how do we know when something's false? We line it up with Scripture. If it doesn't harmonize with Scripture, then it's exposing error. We reprove it. And then we also use Scripture to correct the error that has been identified by laying alongside Scripture. And so the theological differences must be tested by the supreme authority of God's Word and I might just say at this point that when you witness to Roman Catholics, you need to establish the word of God as the supreme authority. Because if you don't, they'll always refer back to their pope or their traditions. Yeah. But those are subservient to the authority of Scripture. Yeah. And how should Christians view the pope? Well, he's the most influential false prophet in the world today. He's leading 1.3 billion Roman Catholics down the wide road to destruction. And I say that by the, by the authority of Scripture. Um, a false prophet is one who distorts the gospel. And the Roman Catholic Church has distorted the gospel in so many ways. And we know from Galatians 1, 6 to 9, that the Apostle Paul condemned the Judaizers because they added one requirement to the gospel. Yeah. They said, if you're a Gentile, you need to be circumcised and come under the law. Well, the Roman Catholic Church has added six additional requirements to the gospel. And so every Roman Catholic clergy member that distorts this gospel and teaches it, they're under the divine condemnation of Galatians 1, 6 to 9. And that includes the Pope. He is divinely accursed. And so is every Roman Catholic cardinal, bishop, priest, and nun. And so Catholics need to be aware that their church is under divine condemnation. And that's not Mike Gendron's opinion. That's the official teaching of the Bible. Yeah. If you distort yeah. the gospel, if you add anything to it or take anything away from it, you are under divine condemnation. Right. If you look at the requirements for a Roman Catholic to be saved, they need to be baptized. That is the sacrament of regeneration and the sacrament of justification. It's necessary for salvation. That alone would condemn anyone that teaches that. But then they go so far as to say sacraments are also necessary for salvation. Penance 
is necessary for salvation. Penance is what Catholics must do to have to have their sins forgiven. Indulgences is the remission of temporal punishment. You have to keep the law as a Roman Catholic in order to be saved. Well, that places them under a curse. Because James writes in chapter 2, verse 10, if anyone keeps the law perfectly but yet stumbles at one part, they're guilty of breaking the entire law. So all of these requirements that the Catholic Church has added places every clergy member under divine condemnation. That's why Catholics need to be evangelized. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. How does Catholics' view of Jesus differ from ours, Mike? Oh, wow. Um, The Catholic Jesus did not finish the work of redemption. You know, when you witness to a Roman Catholic, it's so important to let them know that their only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived a sinless life of perfect obedience and then offered himself the eternal God-man to cancel the eternal sin debt. We see that in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, that our eternal sin debt was nailed to the cross. The Roman Catholics deny that. They deny that the work of redemption is finished. In fact, Roman Catholics believe the work of redemption continues on Catholic altars every day during the sacrifice of the Mass. And so Roman Catholic priests believe they have the power to call the Lord Jesus Christ down from heaven and then transubstantiate the inner substance of a wafer into his physical body and blood, soul, and divinity, such that the Eucharist becomes the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the priest will lift the wafer up for Catholics to worship it, which, of course, is idolatry because it's a false Christ. And and I say that under the authority of scripture, because the Bible clearly says that Jesus does not return every day. In Hebrews 9, 28, it says that he will return a second time and not to deal with sin. He dealt with sin when he died on the cross, and he's not going to return again until his enemies have been made his footstool. And we know when he's going to return, it's going to be immediately after the tribulation. We know how he's going to return with power in glory, there'll be no mistake that Christ has returned. He'll return to the same place he left, and that's from the Mount of Olives. And he will return in a physical body. And so by the authority of Scripture, we know that the Eucharist is not the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a false Christ, and Catholics who worship that are committing the most serious sin. And David, this is no different from the Israelites who worship the true God that delivered them out of Egypt in the form of a golden calf. When Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, all the Israelites were forming a golden calf to worship the true God. And and God had 3,000 of them put to death because he hates idolatry. And so the Catholic Church has got another Jesus. He does not offer the assurance of eternal life. Catholics don't have eternal life. They have conditional life. The Catholic Jesus did not pay the complete punishment for sin. That's why they all expect to go to purgatory. He did not purify all sin. And yet we know from 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The Catholic Jesus does not do that. The Catholic Jesus does not redeem Catholics from the curse of the law, as I shared earlier. 
Catholics must obey the law to be saved. And the Catholic Jesus is not the only sinless mediator. The Catholic Church has another sinless mediator. Her name is Mary. And the Catholic Jesus is not the only way. They believe that Muslims who deny the deity of Christ, Muslims who deny that Jesus died on the cross, are said to be part of God's plan of salvation. And so the Catholic Jesus is a false Christ, and Catholics need to know that. They need to come out and worship the true Christ. And Jesus said that um, the truth will set you free. Catholics don't even know they're in religious deception and religious bondage. The Bible tells us that Satan blinds people from the light of the gospel. The Bible in 2 Timothy 2.24 says that Satan holds unbelievers captive to do his will, and only the truth of God's word will set them free. So this huge mission field is made up of precious souls that need to hear the truth, and the truth is the only way they're going to be set free. And what is the gospel according to Rome? Well, I shared a little bit about all the different requirements that the gospel of Rome has. It's a gospel that is under divine curse. We know that the biblical gospel is a gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, all for the glory of God alone. And if that sounds familiar to any of your listeners, it's because the Roman Catholic Church was teaching that you are saved by grace plus merit, faith plus works, Christ plus other mediators, according to scripture plus tradition, and glory was going to Mary and the saints that died with more than enough merit to get them to heaven. Their extra merit would go into a treasury of merit where they could not only save themselves, but also save their brothers and sisters. And so the Roman Catholic religion is a plus religion. They've added to the all-sufficient work of Christ. They've added to his gospel. And when you know, when you witness to Roman Catholics, you need to be aware that they believe they're saved by grace through faith in Christ. That word alone is so important. It is grace apart from merit. It is faith apart from works. It is Christ apart from any other mediator. It's Christ's righteousness apart from the righteousness of themselves, and it's according to Scripture, apart from any religious tradition or teachings of popes and bishops. You touched on this a little bit earlier on, uh, Mike. Tell us about their relationship with Mary. Oh, wow. The Catholic Mary is another Mary. She is another sinless mediator, as I mentioned to you. In paragraph, let's see, I've got a, a quote here. I'll just give you a contrast between the biblical Mary. We know that Mary was a sinner. In fact, she knew that Jesus was her Savior, and sinners are the ones who need saviors. But the Catholic Church denies that. They say she was sinless, according to paragraph 494, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says, without a single sin to restrain her, she became the cause of salvation for herself and the whole human race. This is an insult to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the cause of salvation. 
and yet the Catholic Church points to Mary. That's not all, though. In paragraph 969, it reads as mediatrics. She did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. So this is indeed another Mary. The Catholic Church not only has another Jesus, another gospel, they also have another Mary. First Timothy 2.5 tells us God is one and one also is the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. David, Jesus is the only one qualified as a mediator between sinful man and the holy God. He is God's perfect man and man's perfect God. No one else is qualified. Yeah. And what is the role of a mediator? It's to come between two warring parties. Before we were Christians, our relationship with God the Father was one of hostility and enmity. But through the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ, he changed that to one of peace and harmony. And he gives us direct access to God. When he gave up his spirit on Calvary's cross, the veil separating the Holy of Holies from sinful man was torn open from top to bottom, showing that now through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. We don't need any other mediator. Christ alone is our access to the Father. Yeah, yeah. By the way, if I can just interject, Jesus destroyed the sacerdotal priesthood when the veil was ripped open. We don't need priests offering sacrifices for sins any longer. And yet the Roman Catholic Church has a sacerdotal priesthood that's offering sacrifices for the propitiation of God's wrath against sinners gathered around the altar. The Roman Catholic priesthood is superfluous, it's unnecessary, and it's actually blasphemy because Christ is the perfect high priest. He did away with the priesthood. One thing that may surprise our listeners is when you mentioned a few moments ago that they deny that salvation comes exclusively through faith in Christ and that they believe that there's a plan of salvation for Muslims through faith in Abraham. Tell us more about that, Mike. Yeah, the plan of salvation in the Catholic Church also includes the Muslims. In fact, I want to read a paragraph out of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and this is their authority equal to the Bible. In paragraph 841, it says the plan of salvation also includes the Muslims. Together with us, they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. And David, I know a lot of your listeners will be surprised when I make this statement, but I'm going to back it up. Roman Catholicism has more in common with Islam than it does with biblical Christianity. Both Catholics and Muslims deny the supreme authority of Scripture. They both embrace another Jesus. The Muslims have Isa, which is another Jesus. He is not God. He is only a prophet. He never died on Calvary's cross. Both religions have a works righteousness salvation. Both honor Mary above all women. In fact, this may surprise you. Islam in the book of Quran speaks more about Mary than the Bible does. Mary's mentioned over 30 times. She's the only woman mentioned in the Quran. Both religions seek messages from apparitions of Mary. Muslims today are going to Fatima, 
a city in Portugal where Mary is supposedly appeared. This was an apparition of Mary. And so Fatima is a city named after Muhammad's first daughter. And I'm sorry, Fatima is a city named after Muhammad's, yes, first daughter. And um, so Muslims are going there to get a message from Mary. And I was uh, interviewed on the History Channel. And one of the things I said is what they used to open the documentary. They said, well, I said that I'm surprised that so many people spend thousands of dollars and travel thousands of miles to get a message from an apparition of Mary when they can open their Bible right where they are and get a message from God. It's truly yeah. perplexing. Yeah. We both have human mediators. We, we talked about that. Both are anti-Semitic. Both seek world dominion. Both use prayer beads to avoid punishment. Both take pilgrimages to obtain favor from God. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the pilgrimages Muslims take, but Roman Catholics also are encouraged to take pilgrimages for plenary indulgences. Remember at the turn of the century, Pope Francis offered a plenary indulgence for anybody who would fly to Rome and go through the holy door at St. Peter's. So rather than point Catholics to the living door, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, he pointed them to a wooden door to obtain a plenary indulgence. So you can see Islam and Catholicism may very well come together. And I believe it will be through apparitions of Mary because she states that she's coming for all of her children. And this may be the catalyst that unites the world in a global religion. We do know that um, in the end times, there will be a global religion and people will be deceived by lying signs and wonders and apparitions would definitely fall into that category. Yeah. You mentioned uh, about prayer beads, uh, Mike. Tell us about those. What, what are they used for? Well, the Muslims have uh, prayer beads and they uh, are the names of Allah. And not one of them is a personal father. Interesting, isn't it? Um, the Roman Catholics have their rosary beads, and they're made up of 53 prayers to Mary, and then prayers to the Trinity and prayers to the Father. But Catholics need to know that nowhere in the Bible do we see anyone, any God-fearing person praying to anyone other than God. In fact, in Deuteronomy 18, it says if you consult the dead, it's an abomination before God. And for Catholics to pray to Mary, number one, she's not omniscient. She's not omnipresent. Uh, she cannot hear their prayers. And so it is an abomination. Only God can hear and answer prayers. But Roman Catholics are deceived about this. And often Roman Catholic women choose to go through Mary rather than Christ because she is said to be more understanding. How do Roman Catholics view scripture? And what should we know about the Apocrypha? Well, Roman Catholics believe, believe um, Scripture is the inspired Word of God. They don't believe it's the supreme authority. In fact, Roman Catholics have three different authorities. They're all said to be equal. You have Scripture right alongside Roman Catholic tradition and also the infallible teachings of bishops and popes. 
And whenever bishops speak with one voice, they are said to be speaking infallibly, such as as a, in a council, the Council of Trent, Vatican Council. But in actual practice, they, even though the Catholic Church says they're all equal, it's the bishops that sit above Scripture and tradition, and they twist and distort Scripture so that it conforms to their ungodly tradition. And Peter warned about those who twist and distort Scripture. He said it would be to their own destruction. And so the Catholic Church believes Scripture is the inspired Word of God, but it's subservient to the bishops. The Catholic Church declares its bishops are the only authentic interpreters of God's Word. So often when I talk to priests and witness to them, they say, you need to come back to Holy Mother of the Church because the bishops are the only ones that can interpret the Scriptures for you. Well, what is our answer to that? The epistles were not written to the bishops of the church. They were written to the saints, to individuals, and we'll all be held responsible for reading and believing what the Word of God says. So the Catholic Church has the same 66 books that are in the biblical canon, but they've also added the apocryphal books. And they did that at the Council of Trent. They elevated them to divinely inspired. And the reason they did that is because at the Council of Trent, they recognized that people were denying that purgatory was true. They were denying that you could obtain favor from God by doing indulgences. By the way, the official interpretation of indulgences is the remission of temporal punishment for sin. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. So they noticed in 2nd Maccabees that during the Maccabean Revolt, they would go around to the dead soldiers and they would see pagan amulets around their neck and they would send alms back to Jerusalem for the repose of their soul. So the Catholic Church grabbed onto that and said, see, there is an intermediate place. See, you can send alms back. And so they added the Apocrypha to the inspired Word of God in order to give credibility to indulgences. Well, how do we answer that? Well, we don't do things just because the apostate Jews did them. They did sinful things. In fact, they even rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. So we wouldn't follow their practice of sending alms back for the repose of souls. And by the way, wearing a pagan amulet would have been a mortal sin. That would have been idolatry. And so that dismisses the whole idea of Roman Catholic lesser sins called venial sins that only send people to purgatory and not to hell. But anyway, that's the reason they added the Apocrypha, was to try and give credibility to their doctrines of venial sin, purgatory, and indulgences. And by the way, David... I have named that the Trilogy of Deception because it all goes back to the garden. Remember, what, what did Satan tell Eve? You surely shall not die if you break God's command. The Roman Catholic Church perpetuates that lie with its doctrine of venial sin, daring to say that if you commit venial sins, which are less serious than mortal sins, you won't die. And so now that they have this venial sin that doesn't cause punishment in hell, you need to come up with another lie 
and that's purgatory. And so purgatory is the place where Catholics go to have their venial sins punished. Well, now that you have a place called purgatory, now you need a means to get them out. So another lie had to be created, and that was the lie of indulgences. Indulgences remit temporal punishment for sin. So this is the trilogy of deception. Venial sins that do not cause death, perpetuating the first lie of the devil, purgatory where you're punished, and indulgences where you get out. And the most common indulgence in the Catholic Church is the sacrifice of the Mass. So when a Catholic dies, the family members go to the priest, they purchase indulgences, Mass cards, they write the name of their loved one on the card, they give it back to the priest with a couple hundred dollars, and the priest lays it on the altar, the sacrifice of the Mass is offered, to remove them from purgatory more expeditiously. But no priest will tell you how many masses must be said before they get out. So this keeps Catholics in bondage, not only in this life, but in the life to come because of the trilogy of deception that they impose upon their people. Yeah. Building on top of that, Mike, tell us about how they view sin and also how atonement for sin can be made. Well, I mentioned there's two categories of sin. There's mortal sin, and that would be things like adultery or murder, or even missing church on Sunday would be a mortal sin. And then you have lesser sins called venial sins. And that would be like telling a white lie or stealing a small amount of merchandise from a store, things that aren't really serious. And so it's really interesting because when you ask a Roman Catholic priest, when does theft go from being venial to mortal? In other words, how much do you have to steal before it becomes a mortal sin? Well, the priest will respond, it really depends on what you believe. You can pretty much justify that all your sins are venial when it comes to theft, because one priest told me it depends on how it affects the bottom line of the store you're stealing from, whether or not it's mortal or venial. So, you know, it's it's a tragedy that Catholics would believe this nonsense. The Bible in Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul that sins will surely die. So death is the punishment. And we know that in the Bible, it speaks of death in three different ways. There's physical death. One of the consequences of sin is that we will die physically. But the Bible also speaks of a spiritual death. We are born separated from God. And that's what death is, it's separation. So we're born spiritually dead. And those that die without Christ experience another kind of death called eternal death, which is eternal separation from God. So every sin is mortal. Every sin causes death. And the only remedy is the blood of Christ. And so, in a sense, we have to be spiritual physicians. We have to tell people their true diagnosis, that they were conceived in sin. They were born sinners. They were sinners before they even sinned. They were born sinners. Yeah. And if you don't take the cure, you will end up dying not only physically, but spiritually and eternally. And the only cure is the blood of Christ. And so, yeah. there is no human cure. And the Roman Catholic Church would deny that. They would say the sacraments are the human cure, but 
No, the only cure is the precious blood of Jesus, and it's based on a love story written in blood on a wooden cross 2,000 years ago. Christ is our only Savior. He's the only one that can save us from spiritual and eternal death. Mike, tell us about the sacraments and what is also different between how they observe communion and how we do. Yeah, the Lord's table in the Catholic Church is not a memorial. It's actually a sacrifice. And when you look at Roman Catholicism, they, of course, deny the work of redemption is finished. And so what they've done is they've taken the Last Supper and created it into a sacrifice where the Roman Catholic priest calls the Lord Jesus Christ down from heaven, and then he is offered up again on the altar. I want to read a quote to you that is very disturbing, but I think this really paints the picture as to what happens during every Roman Catholic Mass. When the priest announces the words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens and brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. This is pure blasphemy, but yet this is what the Roman Catholic priest believes he has the power to do to call the Lord Jesus Christ back down from heaven and represent him on an altar to continue the work that he finished on the cross. They believe that the sacrifice of Calvary is the exact same sacrifice as the sacrifice of the Mass. But we know it's different. The sacrifice of Calvary was offered by the sinless Son of God. The sacrifice of the Mass is offered by a sinful priest. Calvary was for the living only. The sacrifice of the Mass is for the living and the dead, as I just shared with you. Calvary was one perfect, finished, and all-sufficient sacrifice. The Mass is offered thousands of times every day throughout the world, and it's said to be insufficient. The sacrifice is Calvary was for all sin. Now get this, David. The sacrifice of the Mass is only for past sins. That's why Catholics have to keep coming back to the Mass every week to have their sins forgiven that they committed previously during the week. Here's another major difference. Calvary was bloody. Jesus shed his blood. The sacrifice of the Mass is said to be bloodless. This is mind-boggling. The one element that is efficacious in purifying sin, Catholics have taken out of the Mass. Yeah. Calvary was unrepeatable. The sacrifice of the Mass must be continued. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 24, 23, If anyone says to you, here is the Christ, do not believe them. And yet that's what every Roman Catholic priest does during the Mass. He lifts up the Eucharist yeah. and says, body of Christ. Yeah. Sorry about that. And so it is a different Jesus. And it just breaks my heart that Catholics are just trapped in religious deception. The Lord's table 
is to be offered in remembrance of him until he comes. And the elements don't change. We we take the bread and we, we take either the wine or the grape juice as a resembling his body and blood. His, his body was crushed. And so we remember that by taking the bread and his blood was spilt on Calvary's cross and we, we drank the wine or the grape juice in remembrance that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. And we're to do this as a memorial, as a memorial until he comes again. But the Catholic Church says, no, it's not a memory. It's a, a, a true sacrifice. Something that may surprise some people is that there is a growing movement of charismatics within the church in Rome. Tell us about that, Mike. Yeah, this is another bridge that the Roman Catholic Church has built to unite evangelicals with Roman Catholics. I actually had an opportunity to meet with the founder of the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement at the Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. And it was really interesting because I met with him with a couple of other former Catholics, and we shared with him how we became evangelicals and how we left the Catholic Church. And each one of us used scripture after scripture to show him that the truth of God's word set us free from religious deception that we were trapped in by the Catholic Church. And when we were all finished with the testimony of how God saved us and delivered us out of darkness and religious freedom, he said, you know, I have been working with Protestant charismatics for many, many years, and I've never heard so many scriptures mentioned. Well, the reason for that is that charismania attempts to suppress doctrinal truth so that we can all come together in unity. And so they pretty much dismiss doctrine because they believe doctrine divides. And so this is Rome's attempt to bridge evangelicals to come back home to Rome because let's don't worry about doctrine that divides. Let's just come together and sing Kumbaya and worship the Eucharist. You know, that's their ultimate goal. And so the Catholic Charismatic Renewal Movement began around the 1960s, late 60s, and it's still flourishing today. There'll be a lot of people listening that do not know much about nuns. What should we know about them, Mike? Well, it's heartbreaking to know that many Roman Catholic women give up their freedom to become Roman Catholic nuns, and they believe that they are serving the true Lord Jesus Christ, but they're worshiping a false Christ. They're serving a false Christ. And um, I as a Roman Catholic was taught by the nuns and, you know, they're easily identifiable. They're wearing their habits. And whenever I see a nun, I make it an opportunity to witness to them. There was a time when I was um, at a previous church in Dallas where a couple of nuns came to visit. And I knew they were nuns because they were dressed, dressed up in their habits. After the service, I asked them, what brings you to our church today? And they said, well, we are taking a course in junior college and we have been given an assignment to investigate other religions. And so they began asking questions as to what took place in our service. And each time they asked a question, I opened my Bible and I showed them why we do certain things. 
After about 15 minutes, one of the nuns said, how is it you know the Bible so well? Every time we ask you a question, you know exactly where the answer is. I said, well, I was once a Roman Catholic, just like you, and I was easily deceived because I didn't know the Bible, and I never want to be deceived again. So that's why I studied the Bible. Well, now they were ready to leave. I said, before you leave, can I ask you a question? Is it true you're forbidden to marry? He said, yes, we've taken a vow of chastity. I said, did you happen to know that's a doctrine of the devil? They both gasped. I told, I showed them 1 Timothy 4.1. Some will depart from the faith and follow doctrines of demons. And one of them is forbidding people to marry. So one of the nuns said, wow, we're going to have to talk to our priest about this. I said, well, when you talk to your priest, make sure you get the answers from the Bible, just like I gave them to you. Right, yeah. I gave them a couple of our gospel tracts and encouraged them to Believe the inspired word of God over the uninspired words of men. And ultimately, that's the most important principle we can share with Catholics. Test every teaching with the inspired word of God. Acts 17, 11. Yeah. Well, that takes us on brilliantly to our next question. What practical advice do you have for sharing the gospel with Catholics? The three most important things we can share with Catholics we must establish the Bible as the supreme authority in all matters of faith. And I just mentioned Acts 17, 11, great verse to take Catholics to. Here the apostle Paul is preaching in the synagogues of Berea. As he's preaching, he notices his listeners are searching the scriptures to test the veracity of an apostle's teaching. If an apostle comes under the scrutiny of scripture, shouldn't every priest, every pope, every Preacher, come under the same scrutiny. Shouldn't we test every man's teaching with the authority of Scripture? Paul didn't get upset. He commended them. This was good. And then we also see that in Mark 7, Jesus rebuked the apostate Jewish leaders because they were elevating their tradition to the point of nullifying the Word of God also. And so those are two important verses, Acts 17, 11 and Mark 7 to establish scripture as the supreme authority. Once you do that, then you have to show the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Catholics will be unwilling to let go of all the things they are doing to save themselves until they know Christ has done it all. Yeah. And we do yeah. that by showing how Christ is gloriously revealed in scripture. He finished the work of redemption. The veil has been torn open. There's nothing we need to do other than repent and believe Christ and his gospel. So that's the second part. The third most important principle, we must show them that the promise of the gospel is eternal, everlasting life with the Savior. Remember, Catholics only have conditional life. They don't know that they can have assurance. And the only way assurance can come is when they put all of their trust in Christ alone. As long as they're doing things to save themselves, there can never be assurance. First mm -hmm. John 5.13 is a great place to take them. John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. A great verse that shows them you can know right here and now by believing the gospel 
by repenting of all the things you're doing, you can have the assurance of eternal life. Amen. And on the theme of evangelism, I've heard you share a story about the time that you went to confession, specifically to share the gospel with a priest. Tell us about that, Mike. Well, oftentimes when I travel, I try and engage with Roman Catholic priests. But when I called ahead, this priest was too busy to meet with me. So when we, I equipped the body of Christ in this church in Emporia, Kansas, that Saturday afternoon, we went down to the Catholic Church to witness the Catholics, to put into practice what I just taught them. And as we walked in, the red light was on over the confessional box. So that showed me that the priest was inside hearing confession. So I told my wife and the elder of the church, pray for me, I'm going to confession. I walked in, there was the priest. There was no veil separating us like there used to be. I said, I don't even know where to begin. It's been over 30 years since my last confession. He said, well, don't worry. When you leave here, I'll forgive you of all your sins. And then he said, why has it been 30 years? I said, I've been believing, I've been reading the Bible. He said, well, how has that kept you from the confessional? I said, well, what I've been reading in the Bible goes against what I've been taught as a Catholic. He said, give me an example. I said, well, in 1 John 1, 7, it says the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So why do we need purgatory? He said, give me another example. I said, well, in John 19, 30, Jesus cried out in victory, it is finished. So why do you continue on your altar what Jesus finished on the cross? He said, I can see this is going to take longer than I thought. Why don't you call me on Monday and we'll continue the conversation? So I did. I flew back to Dallas and I called him and he said, why were you here proselytizing us? I said, I told you in the confessional because we love Catholics. We want to share the true gospel with them. And as I started sharing the true gospel with them, about five minutes into it, he said, you know, Mike, I was born a Catholic and I'm going to die a Catholic. I said, not according to the scriptures, you were born a sinner and you're going to die a sinner unless you repent and believe God's gospel. Well, then he hung up on me. So I was successful. I was able to sow the seed of God's word. You know, we're not responsible for conversion. We have to take the word of God from the pages of scripture to the person's ear, but God has to take it from the ear to the heart. Right. And so I prayed for the priest and prayed that God would not give him any peace until he came to the Prince of Peace with empty hands of faith. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Mike. Mike, this has been a fascinating conversation so far. We're just about to take a very quick yeah, break. Thank you, Mike. And before we let you go, um, please take a, a moment to let us know your closing thoughts and also to let people know how they can keep in touch with you on social media. Well, sure. I just hope all of your listeners recognize that the Roman Catholic religion is a huge mission field. And there may be a few people in the Roman Catholic Church that have had true conversion, but we need to make disciples of them and lead them out. And that's what the Great Commission is all about, teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. But for the most part, 99 plus percent of Roman Catholics are lost perishing. I hope your listeners have a greater compassion to rescue them 
out from a religion that's under a divine curse. I want to encourage them to visit our website, proclaimingthegospel.org, and watch the videos, read the articles, sign up for our free email newsletter that goes out once a month. You can also watch me on YouTube. David, there was a video that went viral, a message I did in Southern California. Last I looked, there was 850,000 views on YouTube. And all I did was show the differences between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism. But for some reason, in the sovereignty of God, he allowed this message to go viral. And so it's caused uh, quite a stir, not only among evangelicals, but also among Catholics. Also, I'm on Instagram. I'm also on Brighton. And American Gospel TV, I don't know if that's popular in the UK or not, but uh, they've done a 10-part episode of me on Roman Catholicism. They're also going to make some of those into DVDs. So there's a lot of different ways that people can access this important information. And we're here to equip the body of Christ. And I really thank you for the privilege and opportunity to share it with your listeners. And may God encourage all of us to be faithful to the Great Commission. We have to have a sense of urgency the Lord's coming maybe very soon. So let's yeah. go out with a sense of urgency and rescue those who are perishing with the gospel. Thank you so much, Mike. That series on AGTV is, is really, really helpful. And I'll find that video that's gone viral as well. And um, I'll put that in the link wherever you're listening or watching as well so that you can help keep that going viral yeah, if the Lord wills. Mike, thanks again for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, David. God bless you.